0: At the age of four, she had contracted tuberculosis, which was a common disease among our class. Her ailment was caused because my parents were compelled to live in a disease-ridden mining slum at the end of the Great War. Eventually, my parents were able to leave the slum, but by then the damage had already been done to my sister's health, and the TB spread into her spine. It left her a deformed paraplegic with a hunchback. For the last 12 months of her life, Marian was totally dependent on my mother to be fed, bathed and clothed. In those days, there was no National Health Service. One either had the dosh to pay for your medicine, or you did without. Your only hope for some medical care was the council poorhouse that accepted indigent patients.
1: Welcome to the seventh instalment of the Essence of Anarchy series. In the previous episode, we looked at education. I confess to finding it hard to hide my disdain for the state's system of compulsory schooling due to my perception that it is both cruel and obviously unnecessary. Healthcare sits at the opposite end of that spectrum for me. In contrast to schooling... I entirely understand why we might want the state to provide this service free at the point of use. I selected an opening quote to reflect this. Harry Smith is writing about the horrors of life in the 1930s prior to the National Health Service. In Britain today, as across much of the world, it's almost impossible to find anyone who questions the state playing a substantial role in medicine. The nature of that role... Whether services should be run by private companies or the state directly is open to some debate, but questioning the role itself is entirely alien to us. Indeed, I recall in 2008 having lunch in a pub when scenes of Americans protesting Barack Obama's plan for socialised medicine appeared on the TV. My friends and I all found this shocking. It wasn't hard for us to imagine there might be some legitimate complaints about the specific plan. That it favoured insurance companies or whatever. That wasn't the shocking part. What shocked us were slogans written on protest signs such as Healthcare is not a right. We couldn't comprehend such a thing. Okay, maybe on a philosophical level we could discuss what exactly constitutes a right And whether healthcare legitimately fits the bill. But these signs were clearly not objecting on philosophical or linguistic grounds. They were objecting to the very idea of the state providing a healthcare security net. This simply seemed crazy to us. It's not the case that anarchic thoughts didn't occupy my head at this time. I had for many years thought it ridiculous that the state should be involved in education. However, none of my reasons for that seem to apply to healthcare. Education, beyond a certain level, is not essential. Most people manage to live perfectly happy lives absent an advanced knowledge of algebra. Healthcare is, of course, utterly essential and when needed, cannot be delayed. Education is cheap. Anyone can access more books than they could read and there exist all sorts of possibilities for keeping costs low through collaborative learning. Healthcare, by contrast, can be monstrously and unavoidably expensive. Educational choices are highly subjective. A book I find interesting might bore you to tears and vice versa. Healthcare, on the other hand, is highly objective, with science determining the best course of treatment for everyone. Or so I thought. With all that being said... I am still working from the basis that the state is an inherently coercive entity, and coercion is inherently corrosive. Even if a much better case for the state's involvement in healthcare can be made than for other areas, we should still expect to see the effects of that coercion at play. How does it present itself? When contrasting a market and state, or consensual and coercive, model for healthcare, We are comparing two entirely different systems, which will respond to entirely different incentives. We should not expect, then, that the outcomes will be remotely similar to each other. Additionally, they will become ever more divergent over time. This means that selecting the less efficacious approach will, over the course of decades, potentially cost billions of lives. To see how this is the case, just picture the effects of delaying developments in treatments for major diseases, such as cancer and heart disease. Every year of unnecessary delay is an effective genocide. That's a shocking thing to take in. I did consider whether I was right to use the word genocide here, given its severity, but I feel it necessary to convey the sheer scale of death and destruction that would be brought about by delaying medical developments. We have stumbled into a particular approach to medical development without really considering its implications over time. Given the scale of those implications, close examination becomes of paramount importance. I will now attempt to demonstrate the ways in which coercion does indeed retard medical progress, with a measurable loss of both life and well being. Let's revisit the Sopranos Feach Lomana from Episode 4 markets and the mob. You will recall Feach installed a monopoly in the gardening business by intimidating any potential competition. I concluded by saying, inefficiency and higher prices in the gardening business probably does not signal the end of the world. But imagine if medicine operated as a monopoly. The effects of stagnating the development of new treatments would end the lives of millions including those financially profiting from the scam. Let's follow up on this thought. What if Fitch Lamana did manage to take over the healthcare industry, frightening off all his competitors? Firstly, and most obviously, the other healthcare providers suffer. They lose their income, which of course has knock-on effects for their families as well as the wider community. The customers also lose out. The whole point of an enforced monopoly is to keep prices high through restricting supply. LaMana's healthcare, as the firm would be called, could find customers by dropping their prices to a level competitive with other providers. Feature's use of intimidation and violence is not about finding customers. It is about keeping the price of healthcare artificially high. The customers also suffer, as the variation of services available is reduced. Different healthcare providers may have specialised in different areas. Even if treatments were better or worse, there is no way to know how different schools of medicine would develop over time. Now it is a case of one size fits all. Whilst the MANAs do have to provide some healthcare to remain employed, they are not under pressure to provide such a good service, as there is no competition for them. Enforced monopolies also reduce investment in capital equipment. Industries become more efficient over time because owners are effectively forced to invest their profits into new technology. I say effectively forced, as failing to do so means they will fall behind their competitors and will not be able to lower their prices or offer new treatments. Beyond the financial aspects, there is also a negative feeling generated between the owners' healthcare and those they expropriate. The community may turn a blind eye but they know they are the victims of predacious behaviour. As you may have spotted, all I've had to do here is replace Lamarna's gardeners with Lamarna's healthcare. The principle remains the same. I think we could agree, then, it would be very bad for the mob to take over the provision of healthcare. Mobsters would ultimately also be the victims of this, as they and their families would also not benefit from new treatments now not created. So are there any comparisons between the mob and the state running healthcare? I believe so. Firstly, the state inhibits entrance to the healthcare market through regulation. Regulation itself is, of course, a good thing. It's nice to know consumer products we buy won't burst into flames in our hands, and our medical treatments won't poison us. This doesn't mean, however, that regulation has to be coercive or that there aren't costs to a non-consensual approach. Let's think this through. A coercive model of regulation is one where companies developing, in this case, medical treatments, are forced to submit those treatments to a particular regulator. The regulator does not require the consent of the companies involved, and therefore has no competition for their business. Given this, the regulator can reject treatments time after time, after time, with no negative repercussions falling upon them. The regulator is likely to get in trouble, however, if they approve a treatment which then proves harmful. This might sound like a good imbalance to have. Obviously, we don't want people being harmed by insufficiently tested medical treatments. Is it then a positive mark for a coercive approach? The problem here lies in what we tend to see and not see. When a drug like flamidahide causes horrendous birth defects, this is, of course, horrifying. What we don't tend to see are all the people suffering and heading to an early grave because a treatment isn't available to them due to a long approval process. We tend to have a cognitive bias where we become more upset over harm brought about by action rather than inaction. We simply have to be aware of this tendency within ourselves. Obviously, we do not askew all risk when it comes to medical treatments. If a drug has a a one-in-a-million chance of killing you, but a 50% chance of curing you from a disease which is 90% fatal, well, you can do the math. But is this really a big problem, or am I nitpicking to find fault with the coercive system? To answer this question, and see how these principles play out in the real world, we will turn to the work of Dr Mary J. Ruitt. Dr. Ruit is a research scientist who has worked on developing new therapies for a variety of diseases, including liver cirrhosis and AIDS. Her work made her aware of the life and death implications of medical regulation, and she went on to study and teach the ethics of this issue. In her 2018 book, Death by Regulation, Dr. Ruit conservatively estimates that over a 50-year period, 15 million Americans died due to regulation delaying the rate of new drugs coming onto the market. For perspective, this is 10 times more than have died in every war since the country's founding. This figure does not include the drugs that never made it due to regulations making the cost of development too high, or future drugs that would have been developed based upon them. She calculates that every American who died from disease over a 50-year period lost an average of 11 years of their lives. This averages out at the life of every American being five years less. So no, I'm not nitpicking. I'll run through some of the examples Dr. Ruitt provides. For almost two decades, the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, prevented doctors from informing pregnant women that folic acid could prevent birth defects. Dr. Ruitt refers to this as the American thalidomide, Estimating the ban caused tens of thousands of birth defects and thousands more abortions. The patent on aspirin had already expired when researchers realised its potential to prevent strokes and heart disease. There is no way to fund the testing required to make further medical claims. This meant that for 20 years, Americans were unable to benefit from these aspects of the drug. Provenge, an effective cellular treatment for prostate cancer, was so severely delayed in coming to market that protests, lawsuits, and even death threats were made by desperate sufferers and family members. The FDA retards research into one of the most exciting areas of modern medicine, stem cells. Dr. Ruhrt provides examples of people recovering from major heart attacks and ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease, through stem cell treatment. Dr. Ruhr estimates we have lost at least half and maybe as much as 90% of all pharmaceutical innovations due to coercive regulations. She calculates American drug costs to be 40 times greater than before the tightening of regulations. It is an often cited claim in conspiracy theory circles that Big Pharma is suppressing multiple cures for cancer due to them being inexpensive. Whatever the truth or otherwise of this claim, a far more damaging situation is in fact wide out in the open for all to see. It is in the setup of the very structures of the system. If regulation was not coerced, would it still exist? Given that any sensible person would prefer to take medical treatments that have undergone independent testing, there would certainly be a market for it. Not just from individuals, either. Pharmacists, for example, will presumably be adverse to stocking untested and potentially dangerous drugs on their shelves. If regulation was consensual, A number of companies would compete to provide it. This means a medical firm would have options regarding which one to select. This crucially places the regulation company under tension from two directions, not just one as with the coercive model. It must ensure all products are safe. If it approves treatments that end up hurting people, patients and pharmacists will stop trusting it. At the same time, it is under pressure from the medical companies not to take too long, else they will seek another regulator. This tension of opposites ensures a balance is struck between safety and innovation. Additionally, the absence of coercion means no one can stop patients acting in what they perceive as their best interests and trying treatments prior to their approval. I could go on to discuss the provision of healthcare looking at real-world examples of how coercive medical monopolies tend to keep prices artificially high. I feel, however, that the example of regulation is so immense in its implications, it is sufficient to make the point. I will provide some resources in the information box, should you wish to gain a more comprehensive insight into coercion's effect in all areas of medicine. Perhaps I will return to the issue in future episodes. There has obviously been a time in the past when healthcare, irrespective of your wealth, consisted of bleeding and leeches. Hopefully, we are progressing to a time in the not-too-distant future when we'll be able to regenerate limbs. Stem cell research means sci-fi levels of medicine may already be here. I would contend that coercion is a spanner in the machinery of that life-saving process. Would Harry Smith find my case compelling? that in an effort to provide healthcare to all, we have retarded progress and shortened the lives of millions? Mr. Smith's situation is, of course, also one of poverty. His family was simply too poor to afford the comparatively rudimentary healthcare of the day. With that in mind, we had better address poverty in the next episode. Thanks very much for listening.